We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Dei Mater Alma Atve Semper Virgo Felix Semporta Hey everybody, Steve with Sons Fidelium. Wanted to tell you about this book, Christian Social Principles. Now, thankfully, people at Sophia uh, republished this. I it got on my radar a couple years ago, and I mean, it's a fantastic book. Uh, just just show you the, the back cover of it. It says, uh, the church's teachings on communism, liberalism, and capitalism. This, the book will teach you this. How free will is the source of our obligations to society. How freedom of thought and action is a false concept that can degenerate into license. Why communism is a natural offspring of liberalism. Why no one can be both a sincere Catholic and a true socialist. Why norms of morality must be universal in the scope of cross society. Why the work of government will be of little avail without religion to enlighten the mind. You see, vote harder. Uh, let's see. Why justice alone can never bring about a union of hearts and minds. A quote they use in the back is, uh, The sickness of the world is due less to a dearth of new ideas than to the rejection of old truths. And it's one of the things that uh, Sheen, who you see on the screen, he wrote in the introduction of this book, adding, quote, And among these old truths, none has had more disastrous consequence than the abandonment of the true nature of man. And he, he writes the foreword for this by Sister Mary Concilio O'Brien. And this, if looking at politics, looking at anything like this, if you're thinking about even running, which hopefully people are, it's one that act locally, think locally, you must have this book and read it first. It's like, almost like a 101 level of, I'll just give you some of the uh, uh, parts here. Part one, man. Starts out basic, right off the bat. Plans and principles, man, his first beginning, his last end, his acts, his goods, or his good, his guides, his personal inner, his personal inner direction, his extrinsic guide, his obligation, and his freedom. And I think at the end of everything, there's a little cue in it. Yeah, there's a... Just like at the end of uh, the 11th, there's four, there's questions for a study and discussion. There's a summary uh, it's for the advanced readers, parts of the Summa and other books, other, you know, read the encyclicals like right here, Leo, Chief Duties of Christians Assistance, Civil Government, Evil of Evils of Modern Society, Human Liberty, the Christian Constitution of States, Socialism, Communism, and <laughs> any good book on Christian ethics. And that was in the book on uh, society and authority, which that's part two. Society, uh, its necessity in nature, its material and formal causes, uh, its effect, efficient cause, its final cause, its authority. Uh, part chapter 12 is social virtues of society. And then part two is the cumulative summary of, of society. Part three, man and society. Uh, particular societies, the three pr uh, primary societies, the family, its nature, its origin, its role is chapter 14. Uh, 15 is mutual, real, uh, mutual Relations, Individual, Family, and State. Chapter 16 is The Christian State. Uh, 17, The Church, Her Proper Sphere and Catholic Action. Education is Chapter 18 of Social Activity. 
and 19, Non-Christian Philosophies of Society. Uh, part 4 is Man in Economic Society. Uh, 20 is the man, the worker. 21, man, the wage earner. 22, man, the property owner. 23, man, socially ordered. 24, man and society morally renewed. And at the, the last, you get is on page 455, is uh, the book suggestions. Uh, where is it at here? Yeah, there's one. It's easy to do. A couple pages on that. But again, this is a fantastic. I'll read the introduction of Sheen. I have it, I've had it on the website, man, for years. Um, and it's vintage, as they say, vintage uh, Fulton Sheen in here. Uh, let's see, when did he write it? It doesn't say when he wrote it, but I think it was, I don't even know. I don't even know how to speculate. It would be a total guess when he wrote this. So let me get my ugly mug off the screen and I'll just uh, try to read it to you. The sickness of the world, this is the beginning of it. The sickness of the world is due less to a dearth of new ideas than to the rejection of old truths. And among these old truths, none has had more disastrous consequences than the abandonment of the true nature of man. Liberalism and collectivism, for example, are both distortions of the truth about man. The first bred economic slaves through individual selfishness and by isolating man from society. The second bred political slaves through collective selfishness and by the absorption of man into society. Somewhere between these extremes is the golden mean of the Christian doctrine of man, which alone can serve as the foundation of a new social order. First of all, give the true definition of liberty. Liberty is not the right to do whatever I please, nor is liberty the necessity of doing whatever the dictator dictates. Rather, liberty is the right to do what I ought. In these three words, please, must, and ought, are given the choices facing the modern world. Of the three, we choose ought. The little word ought signifies that man is free. Fire must be hot, ice must be cold, but a man ought to be good. Ought implies morality, that is, a moral power distinct from a physical power. Freedom is not the power to do anything you please, so often expressed by the modern youth as, I can do it if I want to, can't I? Who will stop me? Certainly you can do anything if you please or want to. You can rob your neighbor. You can beat your wife. You can stuff mattresses of old razor blades. And you can shoot your neighbor's chickens with a machine gun. But you ought not to do these things because ought implies morality, rights, and duties. The Christian doctrine of man furthermore affirms that you cannot have any rights without corresponding duties. Rights and duties are correlative, like the conclave and convex sides of a saucer. I have a right to life, but I have inseparably the duty to respect the life of others. Since there are no rights without duties, then rights and duties have a social character. That is why, in Christianity, the highest expression of personality is not the egotistic assertion of rights, but in the service of our fellow man. Politically and economically, this implies that the right gives way to role or function. This is the church's solution. Reconstruct society not on selfish rights, but on the basis of function, for men must be bound together, not according to the position they occupy in the labor market, that is, not by their income, but according to the diverse functions which they exercise in society. The difference between a society founded on rights and founded on function is basic. Rights, in the modern sense, are individual. Functions are social in the sense 
that they look to the good of all, and yet both are inseparable, for many rights depend on functions. For example, my eye has a right to see, but it cannot exercise that right except by recognizing its duty to remain part of the body. So long as the eye functions in the organism, it enjoys its rights. My heart has the right to blood, but it cannot exercise that function unless it so loves the common good of the organism as to fulfill its duty of sending blood through all the other members of the human body. What is true of the human order physically is true of the social order vocationally. Capital and labor, from this point of view, are related and made inseparable from the common good of society. This is the foundation of social justice. Finally, the Christian doctrine of man is intrinsically bound up with the problem of property. There are three possible solutions of the problem of property. One is to put all the eggs into a few baskets, which is capitalism. The other is to make an omelet out of them so that nobody owns, which is communism. The other is to distribute the eggs in as many baskets as possible, which is the solution of the Catholic Church. The right to property flows directly from my personality, and the more intimately things are associated with my person, the more personal is my right to them. The more they receive the impress of my rational nature, the more they are my own. That is why writings, which are the immediate creation of a mind, and why children, which are the immediate products of a body, are so very much man's own. That is why the state will protect an author by copyright laws, and why the state recognizes that the right of education belongs to the parents rather than to the state itself. Man's right to have, then, follows from his right to be himself or to his own life. Personality thus becomes a center around which there are a number of zones of property, some very close, some very remote. In the proximity zones of property come our body, food, clothing, habitation, literary products, artistic products of one's own brain and hands, and so forth. In the outer zones are the superfluities and luxuries of life. The right to own property, therefore, does not apply equally to all things. Rather, the right to property varies in direct ratio with proximity or remoteness to personality. The closer things are to our person, the more profound the right of having. The nearer things are to our inner responsibility, the stronger our right to ownership. As the nearer we get to fire, the greater the heat. That is why a millionaire's right to his second million is not at all the same kind of right as that of a poor worker to some share in the profits management or ownership of the industry where he labors. That, too, is why a man's right to a yacht is not as primary as a man's right to a living wage. The capitalist who invokes the right of property against the state taxing his superfluous wealth for the sake of the needy is not appealing to the same basic right as that to which the farmer appeals in claiming his cows are his own. Because property is the extension of personal responsibility, it also follows that five shares of stock in a billion-dollar corporation is not the same kind of property, nor is title to it as sacred as the widow's right to five bushels of potatoes in her backyard. In other words, the right to property is not absolute and invariable. The right to it increases with its relatedness to personality. The right decreases with its unrelatedness to it. These and other applications are simply and effectively made in this needed work of Sister Mary Concilio O'Brien. 
written so anyone can understand it. There will no longer be an excuse for ignorance of those basic principles upon which the church reposes her social teaching. There is no incompatibility between the social philosophy of the church and the modern world. There is only want of knowledge. That want this book seeks to correct. By so doing, it incidentally reestablishes the old truth that man needs to be rediscovered, not the animal man, of whom we know so much, but the rational man of whom we know so little. That discovery is conditioned upon knowing him according to whose image and likeness man was made. For only when God is relevant does man begin to be free. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Here is the preface by that's written by Sister Mary Consalia O'Brien, uh, 1941. So I guess Fulton Sheen wrote that in maybe 1941, maybe 1940, I don't know. But in the early 1940s, Sister Mary Concilio O'Brien. Catholic students, meet St. Thomas. Should this work need an apology for its nature, I hasten to let Pope Leo XIII defend my action. Should I need apology for its shortcomings, I myself must undertake to make it. There is nothing more earnestly desired and wished for by us, writes Pope Leo, than that you supply for the benefit of young students plentifully and abundantly those purest streams of wisdom that flow from the angelic doctor as from an inexhaustible and precious fountain. Let masters strive to imbue the minds of their pupils with the doctrines of St. Thomas and to place clearly before them his superiority over others in solidity and excellence. Written 62 years ago, these words must be the justification of the present work, for without doubt it is a departure from the customary textbooks on principles and problems of the social order. Answering the pleas of Pope Leo and Pope Pius, I have striven to give St. Thomas to young students. Christian social principles is hereby presented to them. It is now two years since Catholic sociology went to press. Its aim was identical with this one, to introduce St. Thomas to the young, intended primarily for the very beginners in the study of Christian social principles, it made its way into circles which no optimism of mine might have hoped for. Seminaries, colleges, novitiates, adult discussion clubs, high schools, and confraternity of Christian doctrine circles gave it hearty welcome and practical use. They wanted St. Thomas and they took him, although he came to them in such simple guise. The reception given the Catholic sociology was so cordial that the author was imbued with fresh courage to meet the demands for a similar book for higher levels. Christian Social Principles, I hope, will be a gracious response to the earnest invitation received from many to present the social thought of St. Thomas and the church to Catholic students of the final years of high school and the early years of college. Intended for more mature minds than Catholic sociology, the present work delves deeper into Thomistic thought and modern problems. Each chapter is supported by direct quotations from St. Thomas and the encyclicals. These are intended for use in discussion and study. Each chapter carries a summary, listing the highlights discussed in the chapter. A variety of questions and topics for discussion numerous enough to allow a selection is given with every chapter. A brief list of readings relevant to the chapter and dealing almost exclusively with the Thomistic approach to the question under discussion is found at the end of every chapter. Aids of this kind expedite not only formal teaching in the classroom, but also private study and informal group discussions. 
Pope Leo warns masters to take care that the wisdom of St. Thomas shall be drawn from its very source, or at least from those streams which, derived from the original source, still flow clear and pure therefrom. It has been my unforgettable experience to have contacted teachers and friends who have initiated me into the beauty and vitality of St. Thomas, and who are themselves streams which flow clear and pure from the fountain of St. Thomas. There have been not a few ardent Thomistic scholars from whom I have received inspiration, and to them I gratefully express my indebtedness and appreciation. May they see something of their spirit in their teachings in this work. Profound thanks are due to the universally known and loved, Right Reverend Monsignor Fon J. Sheen, for his graciousness in writing the introduction to this book. Much has been learned from him during student days, and it is hoped that this work reflects credibly his tireless teaching. The issuance of Christian Social Principles coincides, not without design, with the golden jubilee of Pope Leo's famous encyclical on labor. May it help to make better known the social doctrines of the Church as they have been given to the world in the great encyclicals of Pope Leo and Pope Pius. To St. Thomas belongs all the credit for the wisdom of the doctrine contained herein. To Popes Leo and Pius belong the credit for promulgating it so widely in modern times. Only mind the blame if, in my presentation of him, I have made St. Thomas less glorious than he deserves. In his goodness, he will overlook the fault and virtue of my sincere desire to have Catholic students meet St. Thomas. In chapter 1, Sister Mary Conceal O'Brien writes uh, the opening of chapter 1, Plans and Principles, the plan of the book. This book is about man and society. It has been written to give you a better understanding of the nature and purpose of man, the desires which motivate him and the tools or means with which he is equipped to fulfill his divinely ordained destiny to attain his ultimate end. This book wouldn't be complete if it were about man alone, for man is a social being, nor could it be written if it were about society alone, for it is men who constitute society. Society is the grouping of individuals of a rational nature. So this book is about man and society. It will discuss man and society in the light of very basic principles. It has been carefully planned so that the principles you learn in this book can be and will, it is hoped, be the source of learning for you. Principles are sources like the headwaters of a river. They are seeds from which new growth comes, as the seeds in nature from which flowers and fruit are produced. Principles give us new knowledge, which, though it is hidden in the principles, can be brought to light only when the principle is worked, that is, only when one reasons about the principle. It is our desire to present to you basic principles of man and society, that you may work upon them and increase your learning, that thereby you may multiply your practice of those specially human acts which result in the development of truly human perfection. Just some uh, random places in the book. Uh, just read from uh, in the chapter, the family, its nature, origin, and role. Uh, the second page is uh, the definition of the family. St. Thomas speaks of the family as a group of persons established according to nature for daily mutual help, using together the daily means of life, living a common life in the home, eating together at the same table, sitting at the same fire. It is indeed the society of man's own household. Now the family, though it is a unit, is made up of parts. It is a composite society. Within the society of the family, there is a very necessary society, which is called the conjugal society, namely the society of husband and wife. Without it, 
there would be no family. It is the foundation stone of the society of the family, just as the family is the foundation stone of the society of the state. There is a second component of domestic society, the parents-children relationship. Though the family as such exists from the time of the marriage of husband and wife, it is perfected when children are born. A third element of the family, which in our times is not generally looked upon as part of the domestic society, is the master-servant relationship. In the society of a man's household, these three may be found. The first set of ties, the husband-wife society, must exist. The second set of ties, the parents-children bond, usually exists. The third set of ties, the master-servant tie, is by no means an essential part of family life today. When a family requires the services of others, it has obligations towards them. And it was with respect to this that St. Thomas spoke of that third relationship. Here's a solid part in the uh, chapter, The Church, Her Proper Sphere, Catholic Action. It's under the subchapter of A Perfect Society. In the first place, the church is a perfect society. Her authority is from God, as we said above. She possesses a particular purpose, namely the salvation of souls and the securing of our happiness in heaven. She has all the means necessary to attain that end, including authority which has the right to legislate, enforce, and judge. She has, in other words, legislative, executive, and judiciary powers. She is the divinely established society for effecting man's eternal salvation, and as such, she must necessarily be unhampered in her work in time or in place. She requires, through her very nature and purpose, independence of other societies. The following characteristics, therefore, might be said to belong to the church. A. Integrity or wholeness as a distinct and perfect society in her own right. B. Priority in certain things over the civil society because of the excellence of her nature and purpose. C. Independence of the state because of her universal mission through divine commission. D. Authority to act without hindrance according as she thinks best in those things which pertain to her end and means. Let us sum up these in the words of Pope Leo in the Christian Constitution of States. Quote, As Jesus Christ came into the world that men might have life and have it more abundantly, so also has the church for its aim and end, the eternal salvation of souls, and hence it is so constituted as to open wide its arms to all mankind, unhampered by any limit of either time or place. Her purpose, a supernatural end. Over this mighty multitude, God has himself set rulers with power to govern, and he has willed that one should be the head of all, and the chief and unerring teacher of truth, to whom he has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, divinely authorization to supremacy in our own sphere under the Pope. This society is made up of men, just as civil society is, and yet is supernatural and spiritual on account of the end for which it was founded and of the means by which she aims at attaining that end. Hence, it is distinguished and differs from civil society, and what is of highest moment, it is a society chartered as of right divine, perfect in its nature and in its title, to possess in itself and by itself, through the will and loving kindness of its founder, all needful provision for its maintenance and action. And just as the end of which the church aims is by far the noblest of ends, so is its authority the most exalted of all authority, nor can it be looked upon as inferior to the civil power or in any manner dependent upon it. 
the very truth Jesus Christ gave to his apostles unrestrained authority in regard to things sacred, together with the genuine and most true power of making laws, as also with the twofold right of judging and punishing which flow from that power. Now this authority, perfect in itself and plainly meant to be unfettered, the church has never ceased to claim for herself and openly to exercise. Hence it is the church and not the state that is to be man's guide to heaven. It is to the church that God has assigned the charge of seeing to and legislating for all that concerns religion, of teaching all nations, of spreading the Christian faith as widely as possible, in short, of administering freely and without hindrance, in according with her own judgment, all matters that fall within its competence. In the uh, chapter Education of Social Activity, under the chapter uh, subchapter The Right Inviolable, it starts out, Pope Pius XI writes, quote, The family holds directly from the creator the mission, and hence the right, to educate the offspring, a right inalienable, because inseparably joined to the strict obligation, a right anterior to any right, whatever, of civil society and of the state, and therefore inviolable on the part of any power on earth. She says, Note the right of the family is, quote, inviolable on the part of any power on earth. That includes, of course, any human authority, such as civil authority in general, federal, state, or local, or particular authorities as school boards, principals, teachers, and the like. This right of the family continues until such time as the child can care for itself. If the child is physically or mentally unable to assume charge of itself, the duty remains on the parents throughout life. We are dealing now not only with the right of the family in general, but also with the right of particular parents to educate their particular children. Mr. and Mrs. Smith have the right to educate the little Smiths until such time as the young ones are capable of caring for themselves. This right is inviolable because it is a basic natural right. This right is interior to any right of the state inasmuch as the child belongs to the father and is, as it were, the extension of the father's personality. In condemning the opinion that the child belongs to the state because it is destined for citizenship in the state, Pope Pius XI declares, quote, On the point of the parental right to educate, the common sense of mankind is in such complete accord that they would be in open contradiction with it who dared maintain that the children belong to the state before they belong to the family, and that the state has an absolute right over their education. Untenable is the reason they adduce, namely, that man is born a citizen and hence belongs primarily to the state, not bearing in mind that before being a citizen, man must exist, and existence does not come from the state, but from the parents. And here he quotes Pope Leo XIII, And they, the children, enter into and become part of civil society, not directly by themselves, but through the family in which they were born. And therefore the father's power is of such a nature that it cannot be destroyed or absorbed by the state, for it has the same origin as human life itself. In the chapter, Non-Christian Philosophies of Society, under the subchapter, quote, No law above the individual, uh, she states, Liberalism rejects law. What need is there for law, it argues, when each man is a law unto himself? Since equality of nature makes all men equal, who has the right to rule another? It answers that no one has such rights. Under liberalism, there is no law for authority, with its roots sunk in the Godhead. No authority, therefore, which obliges. The result is that man is told he is free, absolutely his own master. 
The state has no positive right to rule or direct. Its only authority is of a negative type. Like a policeman, it walks the beat and quells disturbances. It has no right to remove the causes of the disturbance. That would be too dominant. And according to the liberalists, no man has that right. Parenthetically, this is libertarianism right there. Hence, those who rule merely run the business of government, but they are not considered to be possessed of any right to rule. For under liberalism, government is only the will of the people and, quote, the people being under no power other than itself is alone the ruler. We the people. <laughs> the people hold themselves alone to be the source of authority, of power, of government. Anything is said to be right if it accords with the will of the people and wrong if it does not accord with it. Anybody thinking the news, your radar should be going off on that. The authority of God is ignored as if no God existed. Pope Leo says of it, thus, as is evident, the state becomes nothing but a multitude, which is its own master and ruler. And since the populace is declared to contain within itself the springhead of all rights and of all power, it follows that the state does not consider itself bound by any kind of duty towards God. This is liberalism as we see it applied to politics and government. And in the next one is liberalism and religion. Liberalism carried into the realm of religion is free thinking, individualism. Interpret the Bible as you please thinking, or don't interpret the Bible at all, if that pleases you. Just do as you please. It means license instead of morality. It begins with the false type of freedom and ends with object slavery. Slavery to passions, to vices, to human weaknesses, to self. And when one looks no higher than self, no farther than his own interests, his, his own passions, his own gains, he is indeed short-sighted even unto blindness. Do as you please is its catchword, and by the hidden force within the practice of its philosophy, it is the same time liberalism's condemnation. In the realm of economics, liberalistic philosophy has become known to history in virtue of its laissez-faire theory of economics, hands off. Business is business, cries the liberalistic economist. There is no morality in economics. Anything is right. As in the realm of government, so in the realm of economics, there is independent morality. Every man is a law unto himself. Right becomes, for the liberalist, whatever is useful or good. Wrong is what opposes his wishes or is of no use to him. Hence, a flow of vices corrupts economic regimes possessed or tainted by liberalism. Greed, avarice, injustice, unlimited competition, and the like characterize their economic transactions. Liberty for them is the right to be self-seeking. Get everything you can, they say in effect, or else you are stupid. Never mind about the rights of the others. It's up to them to look out for themselves. And so under the liberalistic economic regime, liberty meant wealth for those who could get it. It meant inhuman spoliation, injustice, poverty, and misery for the weaker ones who couldn't so readily assert their liberty. The world became divided into haves and the have-nots. The former were free because they were strong. The latter became unfree for the simple reason that they were weak. Here's uh, Leo's the 13th Condemnation. Uh, that's the next uh, subchapter. Pope Leo XIII condemned this false notion of liberty in his encyclical, Human Liberty. He says, quote, Many there are who follow in the footsteps of Lucifer and adopt as their own rebellious cry, I will not serve. 
Consequently, for true liberty, they substitute what is sheer and most foolish license. Such, for existence, are the men belonging to that widely spread and powerful organization who usurp the name of liberty and style themselves liberals. What naturalists aim at in philosophy, that the supporters of liberalism are attempting in the domain of morality and politics. These followers of liberalism deny the existence of any divine authority to which obedience is due and proclaim that every man is the law unto himself. From this arises that ethical system which they style independent morality and which, under the guise of liberty, exonerates man from any obedience to the commands of God and substitutes a boundless license. When once man is firmly persuaded that he is subject to no one, it follows that the efficient cause of the unity of civil society is to be sought simply in the free will of individuals, that the authority of the state is then taken to come from the people only, and that, just as every man's individual reason is his own rule of life, so the collective reason of the community should be the supreme guide in the management of all public affairs. Later, it gets into communism. And she starts talking about communism right off the bat, right after that. The, uh, the I defeated, uh, that's coming up, that's the next one after Pope Leo's. Uh, the absolute we gets into more, you see the C word a little bit more. Uh, fraternity says the church. Uh, that's the next one. It's a short one. And then it goes into communism's great ideal. The great ideal of communism is the classless class. In this condition of things, there will be no need for the state. Now we have seen, by the way, parenthetically, like a NATO, United Nations, things like that, getting rid of this, getting rid of the board, getting rid of uh, countries' own constitutions and things like this. Your own state, your state pretty much is given up almost. It's all about D.C. Uh, if you're in the United States, a collective blob in a sense. No need for the states. And that state is another word for country. The United States is a federal republic. Look it up. It's a federal republic, not a country in the terms. Russia is a country. The United Nations is not a country. The European Union is a union, federation, and republic of unions, uh, countries, just like the United States. They have uniting the countries under one uh, uh, constitution, a federal constitution, hence why each state has a constitution, hence why you see the state of the union not the state of the country in the United States where the president gives his state of the union. And then weeks later, the president of the state, governors, a.k.a., give the state of the state addresses. Back to uh, Sister Maria uh, Mary. Now we have seen that the Christian concept of the state holds that the individual and the family constitute its foundation. Since there is to be no state in communist, uh, communism's clash of society, then the individual and domestic society must be a done away with. Now, this does not mean killed, though in Russia millions have been killed in the initial steps of this communistic venture. It means that the dignity of human personality and the nature and role of the family are denied. What communism has done or is trying to do to the individual, we have noted above. It has depersonalized him, or at least it has tried to do so. It has made him utterly and absolutely subordinate in all that he is and has to the powers that are above him. This, as we saw, is slavery. St. Thomas reminds us that man is not subject to the body politic in all that he is and has. Now, religion holds out to man the hope of eternal happiness. It teaches man that there is a God above the universe to whom individuals and society are subject. It teaches a man 
that there is equality only in nature and origin and destiny, but not in the possession of earthly goods. Hence, it teaches man to consider the spiritual more important than the material. Therefore, because of its teachings, religion must be done away with in the communistic social order. God must be exiled from society and banished from the heart of the individual. So communism tells the people religion is the opiate. It kills your sense of the truth. It slows down your faculties so that your judgments are not sound. You never saw God. How can you believe what you have never seen? There is no hereafter, no future happiness. Only this life counts. Religion and the ministers of religion are your greatest enemies down with religion. With the individual bound to the collectivity, with religion and supernatural things cried down, and God banished from man's thoughts and hopes, communism next attacks the family. Quote, there is nothing sacred about marriage, it tells the people. There is no God. So you cannot say God instituted marriage or gave it grace or its laws and obligations. From society come the laws and obligations of marriage. Divorce is not an evil. How can it be? There is no matrimonial bond which binds perpetually. Marriage is a free contract, and you are free to break the contract if you choose. Nay, society may demand that you break it, if it be deemed good for the social order. Society instituted the family. Society instituted marriage. Offspring is solely for the good of society. As she says, these are communism's ideas. She goes on, free divorce is legalized at the mere whim of one of the parties. The marriage tie is dissolved frequently without more than mere notification to the other party. The children become wards of the government or are left to wander the streets homeless. Marriage becomes only a means for increasing the number of children given over to the custody of the government. And since the government assumes the unnatural role of rearing the children, family life is unnecessary. The mother, therefore, is not needed in the home. She is, therefore, withdrawn from her womanly occupation for which she has been fitted by nature and thrust into public life and collective production under the same conditions as the men. She, too, becomes a unit in collective production of importance only because she hands over to the collectivity the care of her children and takes her place in the ranks of material producers. Education then becomes the work of the community rather than the family. The child belongs to the collectivity, and it must be reared according to the ideas and ideals of the group. It must be taught to hate religion, to deny the spiritual, to view marriage as a civil institution, the family as unnecessary, the role of the individual to be of the use to the collectivity for group purposes alone. The child must be taught that material well-being is the sole end of existence and that at death the individual goes down into oblivion. He must be told that only in time is their life, and the individual's greatest glory lies in what he contributes to the collective here and now, without thought of any such thing as natural rights to this or that higher goal or future destiny. The evils of this philosophy of life can scarcely be comprehended. Applied to any one family, the results are appalling. Applied to a quarter of the world's population, one's breath is taken away at the thought of the consequence to the race. Apply beyond the quarter of the half of humanity, and what hope in human living remains? And yet the precise purpose of communistic endeavors is to spread this satanic doctrine throughout the world. She goes on, communism needs no state. When we have seen communism's designs for the individual on God and religion and on the family, what does it hope to accomplish with regard to the state? Recall first that the Christian concept of the social order, the state, is a society of divine origin insofar as man cannot live alone 
if he would meet his needs adequately. His nature necessitates social living. This includes family life in which he receives existence and the things necessary to meet the first needs of his human nature. The state is founded on the needs of man's nature and hence can be traced through the family to the law of nature and from thence to the eternal law of God. The state is therefore a divinely appointed society necessary and natural and natural to man. But since communism denies the Christian concept of man, it denies, as a logical consequence, his needs. According to communism, man doesn't need a divine destiny because his origin was not divine. He doesn't need family life because he is destined for the collective. He doesn't need natural rights because he doesn't exist for a personal goal. He doesn't need God and religion because they do not exist. He has been duped. There is only material progress as a reality. He doesn't need the state because there is no family in the true sense of the word. The state, therefore, like the family, the individual, religion, and God, must be abolished. The whole social order must be overthrown and entirely new order initiated. But we ask, what of man's nature? Can that be discarded too, and a new nature given to future men? And if so, by whom? Now God is the author of man's nature. It is he who gave man his divine origin and destiny, his social nature, his natural, inalienable, inviolable rights, his consequent obligations, the family, the state, human authority, law, and government. Is communism going to turn creator and produce a new type of men? Impossible. Never so long as God makes men and breathes into them an immortal soul with all that it means can communism succeed in its experiment. All things are made of purpose. Pope Pius XI writes, Communism is a system full of errors and sophisms. It is in opposition both to reason and to divine revelation. It subverts the social order because it means the destruction of its foundations, because it ignores the true origin and purpose of the state, because it denies the rights, dignity, and liberty of human personality. Uh, she goes into communism for quite so many pages, so it's, and it's a great read. And she uh, finishes out this chapter with totalitarian philosophies. So I'll read the second paragraph. Mussolini is reputed for as being the first to use the term totalitarian. In a now famous article explaining the fascist doctrine and movement, he wrote, quote, For the fascist, everything is in the state and outside of the state. Nothing legal or spiritual can exist or be of any value. Thus is fascism said to be totalitarian. In this sense, too, is Nazism totalitarian. The chief tenets of totalitarianism are these. One, individual rights and liberties are destroyed. Two, the ruling power is supreme and unlimited in its functioning. <laughs> we see that with DC. Three, there is only one political party tolerated. Uh, <laughs> she writes in parentheses, all the others are in jail, remarked one Russian labor journal. We might add, or in concentration camps, or perhaps even purged out of existence. And I mean, you can see that now in the fake two-party system that we have, excuse me, here in the States. Uh, Ukraine, you had uh, Zelensky, he's prisoned the dissent, uh, dissidents there. Lincoln, you want to go back in time? Anybody that spoke out against Lincoln, he jailed them, imprisoned journalists, uh, politicians, wherever. There was a lot of people in jail that spoke out against them, so... This has been going on for a while. <laughs> uh, Mussolini wasn't the first for this. For the doctrines of the party are given expression through what we might designate as a party religion, which disseminates the views and acts of some kind of authority for the policies of the party. So the party is the religion, almost like the Vatican. Almost. 
the GOP, the Democrat, that part we have to abide by them. That's that's the playbook we're used. That's we can't dissent from that. Five, nothing outside the state without direct reference to the state has foundation or worth. But since God is outside the state and divinely granted rights are outside the state according to Christian philosophy, God and inalienable rights become meaningless in a totalitarian regime. Quote, everything is in the state means just that for the advocates of the system. Authority arises with the state and party. Rights are state granted and, by that fact, state revoked arbitrarily. No freedom of speech and of press, of religion and education are recognized by the state. Hence, they are neither legal nor sacred. The family has state purposes to perform. Any purposes of family and marriage life apart from state purposes cannot, quote, be of any value. The individual is completely the instrument of the state and the state powers are limited by nothing. They are claimed to be absolute. Religion, the family, and the individual must give way before state-conducted education. Family rights and church rights in education simply are non-existent. The state or party is the only educator. Number seven, law becomes not an effective direction to man's goal and a protection of natural rights, but a means to the concentration of immense power, a means to affect and control party purposes. Law has no religious and ethical basis because religion and God are non-existent in totalitarian philosophies for the state or party is the ultimate end of man's existence. She goes on saying that these are the chief features of totalitarian regimes. Note that we use the expression repeatedly, quote, the state or party. Our Holy Father, Pope Pius XII, writing his encyclical, Unity in Opposing World Evils, pointed out two grave enemies of peace. The first is the forgetfulness of that law of human solidarity and charity, which is dictated and imposed by our common origin and by the equality of rational nature in all men. The second is the divorce of civil authority from every kind of dependence upon the supreme being and from every restraint of a higher law derived from God. Then Pope Pius XII shows the effect of this second evil. He says, quote, Once the authority of God and the sway of his law are denied in this way the, the civil authority, as an inevitable result, tends to attribute to itself that absolute autonomy which belongs exclusively to the Supreme Maker. It puts itself in the place of the Almighty and elevates the state or group into the last end of life, the supreme criterion of the moral and juridical order, and therefore forbids every appeal to the principles of natural reason and of the Christian conscience. Where the dependence of human right upon the divine is denied, where appeal is made only to some insecure idea of a merely human authority, and an autonomy is claimed which rests only upon a utilitarian morality. Their human life itself justly forfeits in its more weighty application the moral force, which is the essential condition for its acknowledgement and also for its demand of sacrifices. She finishes up going, uh, in closing this chapter, let us recall that the Christian concept of society says society is for man. The totalitarian concept turns it about. Man is for society. And by the transposition of these two terms, man and society, complete chaos characterizes both man and society. Back in the uh, chapter, the Christian state, uh, under the subchapter, whence is, whence is power? She quotes uh, Pope Leo XIII in speaking of authority in the encyclical civil government. 
He says, quote, man, when excited by pride, has often striven to cast aside the reins of authority, yet never has he been able to arrive at the state of obeying no one. In every association and community of men, necessity itself compels that some should hold preeminence, lest society, being deprived of a prince or head by which it is ruled, should lose its unity and be prevented from attaining the end for which it was created and instituted. Not a few men of more recent times hold that all power comes from the people, so that those who exercise it in the state do so not as their own, but as delegated to them by the people. Hence they hold that, by this fact, it can be revoked by the will of the very people by whom it was delegated. But from these principles Catholics dissent, for they affirm that the right to rule is from God as from a natural and necessary principle. It is of importance, however, continues Pope Leo, to remark in this place that those who rule in the state may in certain cases be chosen by the will and decision of the multitude without opposition to the Catholic doctrine. By this choice of the people, the ruler is designated, but the rights of ruling are not thereby conferred. Nor is the authority conferred on the delegate by the people, but rather the person by whom it is to be exercised is determined upon by the people. She uh, follows up, because we might in indicate the difference between the Catholic view and the opposing view by indicating the words delegate and designate. Authority is delegated by God to man. The people designate the man to rule. This is the Catholic doctrine. Note, the people designate the ruler. God delegates his authority. The other view holds that the people delegate the authority. This attributes to the people a power that is beyond their ability to exercise. Pope Leo repeatedly makes the assertion that all authority is from God, and he states that political power will have the force, dignity, and firmness required by the safety of the commonwealth and the common good of the citizens, only when it is understood to have emanated from God as from its most sacred source. Pope Leo writes, If those who are in authority rule unjustly, if they govern overbearingly or arrogantly, and if their measures prove hurtful to the people, they must remember that the Almighty will one day bring them to account, the more strictly in proportion to the sacredness of their office and the preeminence of their dignity. So yeah, again, get the book. The link underneath will be in the show notes. This will be great for, like it says, uh, homeschooling, uh, seminaries, uh, just any get-togethers. If you're re if you're looking at Fox News or CNN, etc., during the you know every day, get this, get this, and then watch. You might have a different lens on afterwards. And especially if you're wanting to run for office or thinking about running for office or know somebody that is running for office, get them this book, Christian Social Principles. Sister Mary Concilio O'Brien, uh, Sophia Press has been put it, has put it out. Again, link is underneath in the show notes. God love you. Have a great rest of the day.